Thank you so much. And um, as Aaron gets uh, back from behind the piano and Rebecca here on the stage, many of you remember them because in, in 2015, they'd been here with us for several years and they uh, heard the call of the Lord to go back or go to Papua New Guinea where they've been since that time. And um, you may remember Rebecca on the stage singing many, many, many specials and Aaron behind the piano and then leading in worship as well. Aaron actually served as our uh, associate worship pastor, um, and then during an interim, you became our interim worship pastor, and then you served with Jeff Brockelman for those years, and then you became interim again. So he's twice interim, a double interim with us, if you will, before he went to uh, New Guinea. But now you've been since 2015. Uh, these two heard the call uh, that they believe God placed on their heart. I can confirm that that call was solid, rigid, because we did everything we could to get you to stay. We really wanted them to stay. But they'd begun to hear from the Lord about going and helping translate Bibles in New Guinea uh, where there was a certain area that had no translation of Scripture in their heart language. And they obeyed. They uh, followed the Lord. And uh, they've been there now for several years. And we continue to stay connected with them. But I'm interested in hearing from you today. I want you to share with our congregation several things. But one of those things we talked about earlier was just the obedience of, of following a call that's not easy. I mean, New Guinea is not like another suburb Dallas-Fort Worth, right? So it's very different. So tell us about that process of obedience when you felt called. Yeah, I think that um, the main way that we've seen God provide is um, in our spirits. That we have gone through times where we've been very lonely, where we have felt isolated, and um, God does not, uh, his eye is always on us, just as the scriptures promise us. And so we've seen him be close to us through uh, the prayers of people who have committed to pray for us. And we've seen him provide uh, for us physically as well with um, food and clothing and uh, more than enough so that we can share with those in our community. But God has a, a special blessing for people that uh, continue to obey him. And we have seen that as we've walked this journey. He has been faithful to carry us through challenges. He does not eliminate challenges, but he's faithful to carry us through them. And um, God has just continued to be faithful to guide us, even when it was just one step after another, one step mm -hmm. at a time. Mm -hmm. He's been really faithful. Well, I would just add that our obedience wasn't enough. It wasn't just the seven of us at the time that were responding to God's call. When he, when he called us, he was calling First Baptist Eulis. He was calling First Baptist Concord, our other home church mm -hmm. in Tennessee. He was calling many, many individuals all over the country and the world to, to work towards this uh, effort together. And so our, our obedience wasn't enough, but jo God joined that together with the obedience of folks like you, mm -hmm. uh, churches like this one and, and several others across the country to make his work. And I believe that that is always his plan. That right. It's never us. It's never one person in isolation uh, working and working and working and right. never contact, but every all of us are called to, to join into this work together. Well, we often talk about how God is the initiator. He's the one that leads. We don't come up with those ideas our own. And you probably would not have come up with New Guinea on your own, right? I mean, you're a mother of several young children, and y'all were trying to make it through life and, and, uh, and education, and New Guinea is not uh, number one on the list of uh, best places to visit, right? <laughs> it's, it's, really, it's really a challenging place. It's literally on the other side of the world, taking 30 hours flight time to get there. I don't know if there's anything more uttermost uh, than New Guinea. But in the process of obeying God to go there, and, and that's something that we all face. 
I like to call it the, the chess master who is the Lord, moving the chess pieces along on the chess board. Only he knows past, present, future. Only he knows who puts around us. But he placed you in the middle of a group of people that did not have a translation of God's word in their native tongue. So why don't you talk about who those people are and what impact that's had on them? Yeah, we're serving with the Mamusi people uh, of the eastern of East New Britain. Um, and there's only about 6,000 speakers of this language, and they all live in one little pocket on this one little island. Uh, and the, their whole world is in this little area. Uh, everybody that speaks Mamusi has no access to uh, the, the Word of God in their what we call the heart language. It's hard for us to grasp what that means as English speakers, mostly uh, primary English speakers here. Uh, we have literally hundreds of opportunities, different translations, different versions of the Bible in our language, but not having that. Um, many times people just don't, they can't connect with the Holy Spirit and with what he wants to say in their lives. Um, so these are, these are amazing people. They're generous people. They're godly people. They love the Lord. They're just under-resourced. Wow. They don't have uh, the means of becoming mature followers of Christ without the Word. Yeah, and what we're doing is to take the, the Holy Spirit has been there, and they have heard about Jesus, and they love Jesus, and they want to serve him. But they need the Word of God to truly become disciples. And so that's what God has called us there to help them with. Mm -hmm. So for those of you that have never been before, they don't have a Lifeway. They don't have uh, CBD book distributors or Mardell's, nothing like that. And literally even further back, no one has taken the time to translate the Scriptures for them. So it's powerful when they hear the Scriptures. Now, the Bible says, as we talked earlier, that God's Word won't return void. Talk to us about that in terms of the people's hunger and in terms of their uh, transformation. People are absolutely hungry for the Word. Um, I, I often compare it to um, Europe of several hundred years ago when the church was operated completely in Latin. And nobody spoke Latin except for the church leaders. And so there's this disconnect. People hear the sound and they have an appreciation and they can understand who God is at a certain level. But until it's speaking to them in their language, they don't, this is what I was saying before, they just don't connect with God. They don't understand that those words that they hear have meaning, they have power, and there's life change in those words. So people are absolutely responding to the gospel. They're understanding what God's plan is for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and God is no longer the God of the white man or God of somebody else wow. of another time and another place, but God is speaking Mamusi for the first time to them, wow. and it is, it is powerful to watch that. Wow. Amen. <laughs> are you going to add something to that? Yeah, one of my favorite times was when... Um, but, so we finished the Gospel of Luke now, which is a huge um, victory that we've been able to experience. And uh, they were able to hear the Christmas story one Christmas. We had just finished the, uh, the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke. And to see them um, read that and say that, they have to read it over and over because they are an oral language. But uh, to just allow them to, um, for the Holy Spirit to allow them to finally hear the Christmas story in their own language was just a huge um, it's something that we will never forget. Yeah. Well, we should never take for granted the Bible that we have in our own language, should we? We are, we are so blessed to have so many copies and translations and everything else. So we ought to be grateful for that. Now, talk about the body of Christ. The church helps send you, helps encourage you. Talk about the body of Christ as you've seen it there or here. Yeah. And there's, there's really both of those components working together. Uh, First Eulis and so many, so many places like this all over the United States and all over the world are sending people like us to go. And there's literally no way we could go and 
sustain the work that we're doing without the support of folks like you. Uh, so the body of Christ, whether you know it or not, you're part of this work and you're working together and God is using you as his hands to go to the ends of the earth, as you were saying. So that's one side of it. But also the, the body of Christ there in Papua New Guinea is stepping up. We can't go in and do this for them. I don't speak the language very well. I'll never speak it fluently. So the, the Mamusi speakers have to be the ones to pull the word of God into their, into their language, but they have to be trained. And so that's where we come in. But the, uh, the community of faith there is, I believe, strong. I believe that there's people that want to know God at a deeper level, and they're stepping up. They're supporting financially the, the local tra- translators. They're helping us get around among the, around the country. Uh, they're, they're stepping up and helping us with checking. They're doing all kinds of things. They take care of our family when we're in the village. Um, there's things that we just can't do for ourselves. We can bring all the money we want and all the resources we want, but right. living in the village takes food, and it takes these things that we can't do for ourselves. And so they really step up, this community that we live among. They step up and, and feed us literally every day, and, wow. and it's amazing to see. Wow. So part of the body of Christ uh, is those, are those who go, those who send, those who pray, those who give. But um, there's a couple from here that's going to go and be partners with you, right? Dudley and Lana King are going to go, move there, leave their jobs, go and move to New Guinea. What are you going to do with Dudley King in New Guinea? That's what I want to know. We're so excited that they are coming. Um, we just cannot even express the surprise and the joy that, that we felt when we found out that they were coming. But um, they are such a dynamic couple. Anyone that knows them knows that this, the, the skill set of Dudley King is just we would actually walk around in Papua New Guinea and said, you know, this place needs more Dudley Kings. So we, d- we just need more of those, that type that can just fix anything, that can figure things out and just loves people. And um, so we, they're going to be serving as center managers, which is um, a facility that we go to and other translators like us, they go to to get supplies, to get refreshed, to get rest, um, to have ceiling fans and hot water and things like that. And so maintaining those facilities is a huge, huge important thing. But also we bring in translators from all over the area to that center to be trained for their own translations. And so they will get to love on Papua New Guineans and they will get to love on Bible translators. And I know that Lana's skills with storing and her passion for people and her love for people will be spectacular and we are just personally excited that we get to have a bit more refreshment and more emotional um connection with some people that we love so well yeah you want to pray for the kings and the ways as that happens in uh, the days ahead that's exciting so we'd love to pray for you and uh, we want to do that right now hope you have a chance to uh, connect with them and visit with them after the service Um, and uh, there are ways that you can communicate with them in an ongoing way as well uh, and we'll make those known to you. But let's have some prayer. Uh, stretch your hand this way, if you would, one more time, and let us pray for you. Father, thank you so much for Aaron and Rebecca, just the part of our church that they are and have been, and part of the mission that you've called them to, and a specific location on the other side of the world where you demonstrate your incredible love for a group of people. Uh, through these two and their family, through others who go and who translate and who make available to them the Word of God for them. And Father, I ask you today that you would uh, help move their work forward, that you provide, that you would make uh, a pathway for them day by day for the practical needs as well as the specific need of the translation of Scripture. And Father, that many may hear the Word, and that faith would come by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Father, thank you that you will not let your Word return void without accomplishing the big 
purpose that you've sent it with. So Lord, today we pray for the wage, their family. Uh, we pray for their children. We pray for the days ahead, Lord. Protect them and guide them and be with us as we partner with them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. And would you give them a hand, one more hand to them. Thank you so much. Thank you. God bless you both. We love you. We love you. Man, we are so blessed in other ways and to follow their journey and, and also the journey of the kings as they head that way soon. We'll keep you posted on all that. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts chapter 3 today. I want to talk to you about a game-changing decision. Acts chapter 3, the message that Peter preaches after the lame man is healed at the gate called Beautiful. And, and really, the, the game-changing decision that has to be made is the decision of whether one will repent or not. This is really all about the word repentance today. Please stand with me as we read God's Word, and let's look for the blessing of repentance in this message beginning in verse 11 of Acts chapter 3. While he was still clinging to Peter and John, that is the lame man who's now healed, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are all witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect help in the presence of you all. Man, what a statement. That's a great way to start a message, right? A lame man jumping up and down and Peter saying, look what Jesus just did. But now in verse 17, it gets serious. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return. Now, those are the two words that are so important to this whole text and this whole message. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus to Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive into the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That's a pretty big price tag. Verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. The blessing of repentance. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'll take Peter's message and bring it home to our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Our God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. So I'm going to talk to you about what Peter preached about. In three very simple 
ways. Three very simple points that Peter is making to all the people. A group of Jews, by the way, gathering there that day to hear this message. Now, Peter's kind of on a roll. He, he has two great messages under his belt right now. The first one at Pentecost, where 3,000 are saved, and now this one, where another couple of thousand people come to faith and they're baptized. So Peter's on a roll. What is the heart of his message to these people? There are three things. First of all, Peter begins with a proven resurrection. The proven resurrection. By the way, if you have a chance to preach to a group of people who've just watched a supernatural healing of a lame man, lame from birth, preach to them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is not a big deal, but God could raise up a lame man. The fact that he could raise a dead man, that's a big deal. Preach about the resurrection. Peter wastes no time in getting to that point, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. The one conversation that you can't leave out when you talk to people is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is the first thing that Peter wants to emphasize. Do you think we did this? Do you think by our big prayers that this man is who is lame from his mother's birth, is now running and leaping and running into the temple? Oh, no. You can look at Jesus, who you put to death, now risen. You can look to Jesus for the reason that this man is alive. He's the one that we're following. We're following because he rose from the dead, and he's the one that raised this man up. Believe in him, not us. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historically true, but it also must be personally true. And what he's saying to these people is, it's been evidenced by many who saw Jesus rise from the dead. Now you need to embrace the fact that Jesus is no longer dead. He's alive. And you and I need to have that same kind of embracing. You know, the resurrection of Jesus is so important to everything that we say and think and believe. And it's so important to why we follow Jesus in the first place, why we're believers, why we're Christians in the first place. Josh McDowell said this, Few people seem to realize that the resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone to a worldview that provides the perspective for all of life. Your perspective in life has changed because Jesus rose from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he has the answers we don't. If he rose from the dead, then his word is true, not ours. If he rose from the dead, listen to him, not anybody else. You see a man rise from the dead, follow that man. That's what Peter is saying. That's what the disciples are saying. That's what Josh McDowell says. Or Tim Keller, who said, if Jesus rose from the dead, you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about anything that he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, agree with his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. You know, when I share my faith with someone and they have a tough question about the Old Testament or about some hypothetical as to why they should believe in Jesus, I've come to answer in a little different way than I have in the past. Instead of trying to explain everything about the Old Testament or about Jewish culture or, or the Hebrew people, instead of saying that, I, my answer from this point on is, uh, I don't know how to explain everything to you that's in the Old Testament, but I'm not a follower of Jesus because of what's in the Old Testament. I'm a follower of Jesus because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He will explain all things. That's what Peter's saying. Jesus came to you. Jesus died for you. And now you need to know this man who died is now risen from the dead. But he also moves very quickly to a personal responsibility. 
In verses 14 through 17, he places responsibility on the crowd for the death of Jesus. Look in verse 14. Look down at your Bible for just a moment and look at all the times that Peter uses the word you, Y-O-U. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. You put Jesus to death. You saw this man uh, now, who was now lame, now walking. Verse 17, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. You, you, you. What Peter is getting to is what all of us need to understand. And that is not only did sin in general put Jesus on the cross, nail Jesus to the cross, but our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. In the perspective of God and the mystical ways that God worked, all the sin from Adam all up to the day of Jesus nailed Jesus to the cross, as well as all the sin of all those who lived on the other side of the cross, looking back to the cross, my sin nailed Jesus to the cross, your sin nailed Jesus to the cross, and Jesus died for the sins of all of us. Peter wants it to be clearly known. Jews, Gentiles, whomever, Jesus died for us, and we have a personal responsibility. Sometimes when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, Peter alludes to it here, that this all happened in the sovereignty of God, that God had a preordained, foreordained plan before the foundation of the world, and our sin really doesn't have anything to do with it, and that we're really not responsible for Jesus dying on the cross. But for us to understand the Bible correctly, we need to see that both sovereignty and responsibility exist side by side in salvation. There is an aspect of what God has done in the sense of his sovereign plan before the foundation of the world, but there's also a sense in which we are personally responsible for everything that unfolds in the sense of our sin. Jesus was nailed to the cross because we are sinners. And more personally, I put Jesus on the cross, you put Jesus on the cross, he died for the sins of all of mankind, of all and each one. Let me say this to, to you today. This is not a feel-good moment, but it's an incredibly important moment for you to even know you need a Savior, for you to even know the purpose of the cross. You have to own sin. Open your Bibles to Romans 3 for just a moment. Romans 3 is Paul's theological explanation of all that happened at the cross and the reason behind Jesus' death on the cross. So as you turn to Romans 3, we're going to end in verse 23, which is a summary that most all of us have heard and understand and know. That's the verse that says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many of you have heard that verse over and over? All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We know that verse. But the runway leading up to that verse, bringing it to its conclusion is very important. So look at what it says in verse 9 of Romans chapter 3. In verse 9, it says, What then? Are we better than they? Contrasting Jews and Gentiles. Not at all, he says. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin as it is written. 
And he quotes Psalms. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That's the runway. Here's the conclusion. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now you don't have to say amen to that, but if you agree with that, say yes. Doesn't take long for us to realize that sin resides in us. Doesn't take long for us to realize that in our children or in those around us, sin resides in us. If you want an explanation as to why the world is what it is right now, look to sin and the personal responsibility of every sinner on planet Earth. That's why we are where we are. And that's also why the cross exists. Because we were locked into sin, under the weight of sin, under the condemnation of sin, God knew that would happen and foreordained that his son Jesus would die on the cross, but we must take personal responsibility for our sin and for him on the cross. You, me, us, all of us. I said this last week, I'll say it again. John Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something that was done for us, we have to see that it's something that was done by us. I want to know, I want to experience the fact that the cross was for me. But before I do that, I have to acknowledge that the cross was by me, by my sin. Personal responsibility. Let me say this about personal responsibility. When someone asks me if a person is ready to accept Christ or not, or have they heard enough of the gospel, or are they really willing and ready to put their faith and trust in Christ, my single question to that kind of, of response is, have they taken personal responsibility for sin? Do they know that their sin is not just offending someone in their family or someone in their culture, but that their sin has offended a holy God? Because when a person realizes that sin separates me from God, I have offended this holy God, and it's by my actions that I'm separated from him. Until they say that, until they acknowledge that, they don't see their need for a Savior. But once they own up to that, I am helpless without God. I am hopeless without the cross. There's no way I can be right with God, no amount of religion, no amount of good works, no amount of anything that I can do to make myself right with God. I desperately need the blood of Jesus on the cross to forgive me. Until that moment happens, we cannot put our faith in him fully. But having been brought to that personal responsibility, saying I need the forgiveness of Christ, I need the cross of Christ, that's when we're ready for salvation. You want to know about your children when they're ready to put their faith in Christ, when they understand that their sin has separated them from God, not just from brother, sister, from mom and dad, but also God. And so Peter is preaching that. And then Peter, thirdly, talks about this amazing, powerful repentance. Look at the command in verse 19. Therefore, because of all we've said, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of personal responsibility of sin, that we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. Because of all that, therefore, repent and return. Now, these people have not yet followed Christ. And now he's saying to them a twofold command, turn from your sin and pursue Christ. The meaning of repent is simple. It's to change the mind in such a way that allows you to turn to God and to change your actions. And it's evident when a person has done that.
Repentance is not just repeating words. Repentance is not just saying, you know, maybe I am wrong. Repentance is that realization that I am horribly wrong, irreversibly wrong. I am so wrong that I'm separated from God and I must turn from my sin to pursue and to follow the living God. That's what repentance is. And the blessing is several-fold. As you read this text and this message, it's several-fold. Listen to what happens when we repent. A, our sins are wiped away. B, the presence of the Lord begins to take place in our life. C, we turn away from wicked. And D, in verse 26, we're blessed by Jesus in all these ways. Lives change when repentance takes place. Have you ever read about the great awakening of the previous centuries? It's fascinating reading. The layman's prayer movement of 1857 took place a long time ago now. But it was a movement that began with a group of businessmen in New York who wanted to pray because they knew their world was getting darker. And so they began to pray. They called a businessman's prayer meeting, and six men showed up on the first day, and they prayed after wondering whether they should go ahead or not. They went ahead and prayed. The next day, 10 came, and it began to increase. So daily, they began to meet for prayer. Within a space of about a year and a half, 10,000 businessmen were praying every day in downtown New York City. Now, that, uh, to me, is a modern miracle in itself, that 10,000 men would leave their offices, shut them down, and go pray. But what happened in addition to that was amazing. Because not only were they praying, but sinners were welcomed into their group. Now, I'm reading from uh, a description written back in that day. So sinners were welcomed, prayed for, and encouraged to turn to Christ. Some hardened criminals were saved on the spot. Repentance is happening. Hundreds of people who had always spent their night in what's called the gates of hell in the New York City area came to prayer meeting that had begun in the evenings as well. Thousands forsook crime and became devoted followers of Christ. Crime and vice... V-I-C-E, drastically declined. Wealthy people learned generosity to help the poor, whom they now began to regard as their brothers and sisters' life returned because prayer was offered and repentance was taking place. So repentance has, as its result, a changed life, which eventually results in a changed culture and certainly a changed church. So Peter is saying this to the people. Repent, turn, so that you may experience times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Lord. There's blessing there. But we need to see how we repent. So let me share with you very briefly three key ways repentance happens. First of all, repentance is the gateway to salvation. When we understand that Jesus died on the cross for us, the way those at Pentecost did, then repentance is the way to follow Jesus. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, the message was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the offer of repentance. And the people said, what must we do? And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let each of you be baptized in the, in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sin and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. At salvation, we must turn from our sin and put our faith and trust in Jesus. That is, we must repent. Change our mind about who Christ is. Change our mind about who we're following and who we will follow and put our trust in Christ. But repentance is also a response to Jesus' call. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is one of those great verses where the church at Thessalonica, which was uh, an obedient church, and it was immediately in revival, immediately in passionate pursuit of Christ, so that when Paul writes the first letter of Thessalonians, he writes without one word, 
of reprimand or correction, and everything's about commending them and explaining why their faith was so powerful. So in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 1 9, he says this to them, writing back, he said, They themselves report about us what kind of reception we have with you, Thessalonians. And here's what he says. He said, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, I've shared this in the past. I share it all the time with those we teach to share their faith. But I want you to see this. Walk this out. If you're moving in this direction, following idolatry or just your own way of living, and you hear the gospel, for you to do what those in Thessalonica did, you turn to God. And when you turn to God, you turn your back on sin. And you begin to serve the living and true God. So it's a movement this way. You hear the gospel, repentance means turning, changing your mind, turning your actions to begin to pursue God, and you're moving this way now. So you're responding to the call of Christ, the superiority of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ above everything else you were following. You said, this is worthless now. This brings condemnation. This pulls me down. This removes me from God's presence. But I hear a way out, and I turn to Christ, and I begin to follow him. That's what repentance is. It involves a turning. And the reason we do that is because we see the gracious offer of forgiveness from Christ. Theologically, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and the riches of his tolerance and his patience, knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You know why I want to repent of my sin? Because Jesus has loved me because he sacrificed his life. He shed his blood. He died on the cross. I want to repent because Jesus is better. Do you believe that today? Jesus is better than anything I had in the old way of life. He's better than any promise of sin. He's better than any situation I was in before or any person that held me there. Jesus is better. So I turn. And in the power of that turning, Christ gives me the power to leave behind sin. So repentance is response to Jesus' call. And then finally, repentance is a radical, complete, and thorough. There are some verses I want to read to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to say this to you that when you get to 2 Corinthians and begin talking about repentance, you're talking about believers who've already turned, put their faith in Christ, but now deal with the lure of sin the temptation of sin, and even actions of sin. And they must respond with a spirit of repentance and an act of repentance inside that Christian life. They've already put their faith in Christ, but now notice what it says in these passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. Now, let me ask you to slow down for just a moment. In spite of the fact that we're near the end of this message, this is some of the most relevant stuff I can give you today as a believer in Jesus Christ to know whether you're really truly turning from sin and following him or whether you're just playing the game. Here it is. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world would be, whoops, I was caught. I regret being caught. But godly sorrow truly turns. Verse 11. For behold what earnestness this very thing. What is earnestness? In the original language, earnestness means speed and haste. When I realize I'm going the wrong way without haste and with much speed, I want to turn. I want to go Christ's way. 
All of a sudden, I realize I'm going the wrong way on a one-way street. What do you do on a, on a highway when you're going the wrong way on a one-way street? You know catastrophe is just ahead. So what do you do? You, you get off as fast as you can, and you go the right way. You don't say, in five minutes, I may get off. After this song finishes on the radio, I'll get off. That's not what you do. You know you're going the wrong way, and tragedy is ahead. You turn as fast as you can. That's what Paul says. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication. I want not only to turn, but I want everybody to know I've turned. Not, not in prideful boasting, but I want no one to think that that's the right direction, the way I was going. I want them to know I'm going the right direction in following Christ. What vindication of yourself. What indignation. This is the word that refers to the grief that we feel when we know we're going the wrong way, away from Christ or in our own way, the remorse. What fear. I know if I keep going the wrong way, only bad things will happen. Only tragedy will take place. What longing. I desire to be with Christ instead of every, everywhere else. I desire to follow him instead of any other direction. What zeal. What fervent pursuit of God. What avenging of wrong. I want to make things right. The things that I've done wrong, I want to make things right and pursue Christ with all my heart. Paul said, that is the repentance of a believer. When he or she is made aware of the wrong thing that they're doing, then in everything they will want to demonstrate themselves to be innocent. Anything less than this is the sorrow of the world. Sorry you got caught, but not repentance. Repentance doesn't come in trial-size packages. Yeah, have you ever gone to a store and bought trial-sized packages of certain shampoo or certain mouthwash or certain toothpaste? I'll try it out. I'm not really all in yet on this product yet. I'm going to try it out. Repentance doesn't come in trial-sized versions. It's all or nothing. Knowing Christ has died on the cross, knowing Christ offers salvation, knowing the loving kindness and mercy of God await you, then repentance for the believer is to turn as quickly as we can and run wholeheartedly to Christ. Let me say this to you. When you start taking those steps of faith, you change your mind. That which you thought was desirous before is hideous now. That which you thought was attractive before you now realize is wrong. That which you were wanting before you no longer want because you want Christ more and you turn. And in that turning comes the power of the Spirit of God in your life to let you walk with Christ. You change your mind. He empowers you to change your life. I've always said that repentance and faith are one action with two results. We turn to God and we turn our back on sin by the virtue of we turn into God and then we follow him. So let me ask you today, have you repented of your sins in order to follow Jesus as the Lord and Savior for the first time in their life? It's not just a magical prayer. It's not something you say, oh, I must be going the wrong way. I need a little religion plus Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about owning your sin, recognizing that your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. So recognizing that, we turn to Christ. We throw ourselves at him and at his mercy, saying, forgive me, God, I'm a sinner. I need the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. If that's never happened in your life, let it happen today. Put your faith and trust in Christ. If that's already happened, but you're living a life that doesn't look a whole lot different from an unbeliever than the spirit of repentance and daily repentance is what you need. Knowing you're going the wrong way very quickly with haste, with speed, turn to Christ and begin to follow him because Jesus is better and you know that. Begin to desire him instead of everything else. 
and it will be the game changer for you. Repent and return that you may experience times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Does anybody in this room today need to repent and return? Would you bow your head for a moment? Counselors are going to come to the front. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. But before we sing, in these last few moments of this service, I want your attention for just a moment. And I want you to know today that, that to not repent is to say no to the loving kindness and the mercy of God. It's to say no to his forgiveness. It's to say no to his sacrifice on the cross. It's to say no to the life that he offers you. It's to say no. It's to say, Jesus, there are things that I'm pursuing that I know are sinful, but I've made that choice. And what you've said is, my choice to sin is more valuable than any opportunity to know you, to walk with you, to follow you. You've made the choice. Repentance is changing that choice. Repentance is turning from that choice and beginning to follow him. I hope today there are people here in this room that don't feel good. I hope today there are people in this room that are hearing my voice that feel conviction, that feel remorse, that feel broken, that know they need to repent and return. And I want people in this room to know there is a blessing at the end of repentance. Nothing substitutes for his presence in your life. Oh, wow. Nothing substitutes for his forgiveness in your life. Let the kindness of God today lead you to repentance. Would you stand with me, Father, in Jesus' name? I ask that you let us respond in faith and in repentance without pride, without anybody worrying about what anyone else thinks over these next few moments as we sing this song that we either give our lives to you for the first time and turn from our sin and put our trust and faith in you. Or as believers, we repent from sin that's in our lives and say, Lord Jesus, help me as I follow you. Help us to respond in faith to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sing with us.